Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. So, two caveats for expert on Japan. I'm not an expert on Japan. Uh, for the demographers here, you may have heard some of this uh, earlier. But uh, I think the combination uh, is, uh, is new enough and the issues are crucial. So I'd like to discuss really population change in a broad perspective. Start from fertility as the key driver of population change, but then move to the, the, ne the neglected side, i.e. migration, and try to put that in the context of, of a comparative perspective where I hope to be able to say something about Japan without being an expert on Japan. So please, <laughs> forgive me. Um, also forgive me to start with a very uh, kind of didactical approach and I'll show you some basic uh, demography 101 to start with because I think it is relevant to shape the way we see, we, we see and we probably ought to see population change. Uh, so again, forgive me if I start by simply discussing what population reproduction is and showing you some uh, balancing equation, some plus and minus. Then I'll move to fertility, and in particular the new fertility regime that is emerging. Uh, after that, I will focus on the role of migration, and maybe some conclusion before uh, having some debate. I'm uh, happy to be interrupted, especially if something is unclear, or if I'm too slow, please tell me go faster. If I'm too fast, please tell me too slow. I won't, sh I won't use mathematics, but again, these are just plus and minus. <laughs> so the population, basic demography, population at 1st January in year T plus 1 is the population at the 1st January in the preceding year, plus the births minus the deaths, plus the immigrants minus the out-migrations in the preceding year. That's, basic, that's algebra. But it's useful to the topic of population reproduction. Uh, sometimes we, we do a bit of passages and we transform this in rates. So divide, put the population to the left, and divide by the size. And this is the growth rate or crude growth rate. Uh, the interesting thing, and that's why also this talking divided into parts, Population growth rate is divided into two parts. One is called, tech, this is UN jargon, so it's not my choice, rate of natural population increase, which is the difference between crude birth rate and the crude death rate. Again, that's algebra, plus net migration rate. So again, population reproduction, one is population change can come from two sources. Sometimes it's neglected. We know there is at least one empirical case when there is no relevance of out-migration. And that's not Japan, but it's a world population. So for other populations in the world, migration is always potentially different from zero. But for the world population, for the moment, we can treat the world as a closed population. And then we only care about fertility and mortality. For all other populations, if we talk about population change, both are potentially contributing to this. 
Uh, I'm using UN data. So this is the crude growth rate, the blue line. This is the rate of measurable population increase, and this is net migration rate, which is probably not extremely well estimated. But what we see for Japan is basically there is no difference between crude growth rate, between the general population change and the natural rate. So basically, the fertility and mortality are contributing to that. Uh, we know that in longevity, Japan is a world leader, and so in terms of population reproduction, that will not make a big effect, but I will go back to that later. We are go and this is either going to zero or below zero, depending on a single year that you use. Just an, as an example, this is the UK. The scale is the same. Pretty different dynamics. Crude growth rate is blue, and now basically growth is uh, almost equally explained by natural and now it being 2010 by natural and migratory movements. Okay, so that's again simple algebra and some figures comparing two societies. Okay, one way it, this is the whole population. Second way, cohort reproduction. So how does cohort reproduction work? For simplicity, we just look at mothers, but we could look at fathers. But it's easier to look at mothers uh, for a number of reasons. And if you like, I can go towards it. So we need to be, we could be a bit more technical, but let's say the mothers in one cohort or one generation uh, depend on how many mothers were there in the previous generations times fertility of the generation of, of the previous generation, so how many children each woman had, times the survival up to becoming a mother. And this is a concept that, that becomes close to what demographers call net reproduction. And it explains why, if we look at population reproduction, we tend to be obsessed by uh, fertility. Basically, this is not taking into account migration, our being migration in later. But if survival up to reproductive ages is almost one, so almost everyone survives up to reproductive ages, then population re reproduction is dominated by fertility. As simple as that. And again, if we are speaking of societies where mortality is so low that it's a world record, uh, low mortality. In population reproduction, in terms of cohorts, fertility is what counts. And I will go back and say also migration, but we need a different definition of reproduction. This is mothers reproducing by having children. That's why we care about fertility. And again, this should be well known to this audience. And maybe the whole series will be justified, Japan starting at 3. Point amount, 3 .5 in 1950, and now 1.3, 1.3 something. There is an uptick, but we'll go to the uptick later on. This is the UK, baby boom. But then, sort of uh, stabilization. Pretty different dynamics. Implication for population reproduction, that's where we are here. So 
each chord is not reproducing itself because this is round two. So when women are not having two kids, more or less, two point something, then they will not be able to have an equal number of daughters who will become mothers and so on. So that's the, the whole challenge for below replacement fertility. Uh, Okay, so the, the key issue is, you see this divide. What's going on here? What, what's the future of fertility? Where are we going? I won't be able to give an answer, but I can give you some data and uh, one hypothesis. Uh, are things fine so far? Should I go back? Uh, okay, let me move to fertility. First, what is the standard result of people studying fertility for centuries? Poor people have kids, rich people don't have kids. Or poor people have more kids, rich people have fewer kids. Poor societies have more kids, rich societies have fewer kids. Of course, we have already started seeing, speaking about, thinking about Japan and you say, oh, it's not exactly working if you compare Japan and UK. This is the Human Development Index down here, and this is total fertility rate, so the number of children per woman. <coughs> so this indicator of population reproduction. Of course, when development is low, mortality will be high, so this indicator is not necessarily a good indicator of reproduction, but when development is high, this is driving natural change. One of the big regularities has been that as development goes by, fertility decreases. That's, you can call it, it's part of the demographic transition, the fertility transition, uh, and so on. So that, that's a nice regularity. It fits well with uh, what we know. It fits well with uh, ideas of progress. There is a, there is a but. Okay, what happens when we get to the end? So will it logically continue forever so that as countries, societies become richer and richer, they will end existing because they won't have kids? So if, if you just take and follow these lines and say, just go down. So the simple answer, of course, is no. But this is new territory. I will, I will show you some data. It's something that that is completely no, because we haven't been to this level down of both developments and fertility. So it, it is something that only if we look at very recent data we can uh, discuss. And then it is something that we need to speculate on uh, thinking about the future. Uh, sorry, you don't see this. I, I have a little bit of a quiz. You probably now have a guess where I'm going. So where do family have more kids now? It, do people have more kids in Brazil or in the United States? Easy. US. US. Okay, but that's, it's too good. You're too Iran and Norway, <laughs> Thailand and Australia, and then I, I will bring uh, Italy a bit just because of uh, my origins, but also because it's, it provides an interesting experience. Basilicata, which is a poor region in the south, and Lombardy, which is 
the great region in the north where Milan is there. Uh, so basically, again, if we look at the traditional view, we will expect that the, the better of countries or regions to the right will have lower fertility. These are fertility rates in 2010, and we, we probably know now that in the United States is a great case where basically they get magically to replacement level, which is something <laughs> demographers also say it's impossible to reach, but in the US maybe sometimes it's 199, but it's magically around replacement. Norway has more kids, Norwegians have more kids than Iranians, Australians far more than uh, people from Thailand. And in Lombardy, people have more kids than in Basilicata. So that's, sorry, if I go back, it's not consistent with this picture. And this is the standard, this has, this has been the standard view for decades, and this is what has driven fertility thinking for a while. So what is going on now is a new re regime is born in developing societies, and this is a fact. I will go back to the figures again. My additional hypothesis is uh, as a grand uh, uh, ambition. This regime will spread to the whole world. And in this regime, better off, more gender equal societies will have higher, although not high, not six kids, but higher fertility and happier family life than worse off gender unequal societies. And within societies, if you want to uh, apply that, also the better off and the more gender equal will do better. So this is the, the general idea. I won't be able to prove that because this is a long-term claim, but maybe in 50 years we can get that. Please. So quick question. What values are you using for happier family life? <laughs> uh, I could use happiness, reported happiness for people. I could use uh, income or conflict, perceived conflict. But I won't discuss that. But I can go back to that. Let's say general measures of subjective well-being. Uh, my other point is that the new regime can be observed by looking at some forerunners. Uh, and with recent data, suddenly it is possible. You already guessed from the data I showed that it is possible to see some changes. And this is a consequence of a parallel shift in the relationship between development and fertility, which I will look uh, upon in specific. Changing cultures and idea, what is called the second demographic transition, something that we could discuss later on better. Shifts in gender relations and roles, and shifts in policies and institutions. It's very hard to isolate one causal factor here. For instance, institutionalists, including many of my colleagues in sociology, tend to say, okay, this is, things are changing because policies and institutions are changing. And of course, we know that policies and institutions may change also because there are other factors pushing that kind of change. And they may be connected to the, to the factors up there, like culture. Uh, pushing the, or cultural change pushing uh, changes. Uh, okay, so remember this figure. This is the new regime. Human development index here, total fertility there. 
This is the overall relationship in blue, 75. This is 2005. If we zoom in 2005, there is something a bit more interesting. So at very high levels of development, the relationship seems to turn and become positive. So the idea here is that if we interpret this causally, and I will go back to potential causal interpretation, at some point, if I exaggerate, I would say in the history of uh, modern societies, uh, societies make development compatible with having children, while for a long time development was incompatible with having children. Not only that, among these societies that better off, and here I, I have a measure human development index, better off means higher income, longer life expectancy, higher education, the better off tend to have higher fertility. And this is a result uh, from a paper in 2009 with uh, Mick and Hans-Peter Kohler. Uh, okay, nice result, at least, I hope. The other thing is that we could not observe this result earlier. Why? Because it's a, it's a new finding. It's part of this new regime. It's part of the cultural changes, the policy changes, this kind of general shift that it's difficult to disentangle, but we know it's there. Policy has changed. People have changed behavior. And this change is quite recent. It may have been a reaction to what has happened in terms of family, general gender change. It may be in a reaction uh, with governments seeing uh, challenges in combining work and family, governments seeing low fertility. It's quite recent. This is the same figure in 75, so negative relationship between development and fertility. 77, 79, 81, always negative. 83, so the, the, this period was basically still in the old style. Here, countries in the mid-90s, we know that fertility went down first in Italy and Spain, and then this extremely low fertility or lowest low fertility spread to Eastern Europe, Japan, Korea. It's not a spread, but it's kind of a common trend. And for instance, this period was uh, the lowest point in Southern Europe, 96. Only if we get to the recent data, I'm sorry, you cannot see that well, but only if we get to the recent data, there is this uptick in fertility. So this change uh, is very recent by the times, by the time scale of demographic change. It's quite recent. Uh, if there is uh, anyone who's interested in statistics, okay, this shift is relatively robust, we can, we can use fixed effect models or other kind of models to, to show that there is shift. But it's, it's not something that we could have seen earlier. Um, we could look at some societies, and here, total fertility rate and human development index. So these are some of the societies that are after the threshold of very high development. Norway, US, Netherlands, Italy. This is basically the rebound at the single national level. 
Okay, one interesting country for you guys is here, Japan. We don't have the very recent data, sorry, but Japan has no rebound. There is a, a rebound if we look at the recent data, as we saw earlier. But in this general shift to a new fertility regime, there are some exceptions, and the exceptions, we will go back to that, tend to be clustered in Japan, Korea, Singapore. So there must be something specific there. And I, I, I have some simple macro analysis that I will show to you. So it is the, the shift, if, you, if we look at country-level evolution, this shift is there in the majority of countries, but not in all countries, and at least in a country of particular interest to this audience. It's not there, or at least not there yet. Is it, is it clear what I have here? So basically, it's over time, human development index evolution as a single country and fertility. What are the last two? <coughs> the last two is Austria and the United Kingdom. Okay. So the UK is a bit erratic. I mean, there's been many, many movements in uh, the human development index may move quickly if the economy changes quickly. That's, that's usually what, what makes it <coughs> there. Uh, okay. Something maybe, I mean, this is a complex graph, but it, the information is pretty simple, but I'll try to tell you what's in there. So this change means that in the societies that are doing better in terms of human development, as uh, development progresses, fertility goes up. In particular here, fertility is uh, divided into two parts, up to age 30, after age 30. And these are all country-level trajectories simplified, so they're just two lines. So what is this saying? This, this is saying that fertility below age 30 is continuing to go down as fertility, uh, sorry, as development progresses in basically all societies, with some exceptions, very minor exceptions. But the general idea is this New fertility regime is not a fertility regime with teenage fertility, with people having kids earlier. It's not a traditional idea of fertility going up. It is a new idea of fertility going up. It is due to changes in fertility after age 30. So all this uh, big change is basically related to fertility postponement and the ability to have uh, kids after age 30. This is about age, gender. Uh, let me just explain what's in there because it's interesting to look at this cluster of countries. So basically here there is a, a study of the relationship between whether fertility goes up or down after reaching a certain development point, and a measure of the, this is a global gender gap index, but we tried also different measures of gender equality. So this is positive, this zero means that after reaching the 
a common threshold of high development, fertility starts going up. So for all these countries above zero, fertility goes up after a certain level of development. For countries below zero, fertility keeps on going down. Of course, this is pure cross-country correlation, no causality there. So the countries for which we have good data that stand out here are so Japan, Korea, uh, Singapore, uh, I think it's uh, Hong Kong, the other one. Uh, basically, a negative uh, slope is there for countries with lower gender equality. Uh, so just to go back and recap, so the recent data allowed to observe a reversal of the historically negative relationship in developed society between fertility and development. This is corroborated, I didn't show you that there's some evidence that fertility seems to be answering uh, to, to the cycle in a positive way, so the crisis has had some effect, which is consistent with this idea in terms of lower fertility. But there are two points. First of all, there's a key point of postponement and recuperation. Both points are, let's say, innovation with respect to traditional societies. So it's important to understand what's going on to fertility later, at later ages. So only societies where uh, people have kids later and they have enough can reach higher levels of fertility. And the second point is there's a key role of gender equity, at least across societies. I would say we have also have, we start having enough uh, studies within societies on a, a key role of gender equity, but gender equity is uh, basically pushing fertility up. This is consistent with a set of other findings, like a positive correlation between female labor force participation and fertility, that are also uh, more recent uh, type of uh, findings. Uh, questions? Any? I have a bit of a first question. On the previous graph, what's the country at the very bottom? The BN? Uh, it's <coughs> below everyone, do you know? Brunei. Brunei, I think, yes. Yeah, so, the, of course, some of these countries have smaller uh, populations than others. But these are all the countries for which development, the Human Development Index reached uh, specific levels. And basically, these countries are continuing fertility decline, where other countries have uh, changed their fertility trajectories. So one theoretical idea, what's, what may be happening, I've been working a bit with Joster, uh, Espin, Anderson. Basically, one, good one potentially good explanation is all this is within a global gender revolution. Let's say women's increasing, uh, increased education I don't get into what is causing that, but assume 
there is a big uh, uh, push towards women's increased education and at the very beginning we are in a sort of what we could say a Becker or Parsons world where basically women are not studying so much. Specialization is a great uh, response to this uh, di division of labor. Men are studying, women are not. Male breadwinner, high fertility specialization. Women start studying for any reason, maybe exogenous reason. Uh, so the problem is being in the middle. Women are caught are in the labor market, maybe not in a great position. Men are not participating in household labor. There is still a, a problem of gender inequity. That's a situation where we may be caught. Uh, so the, the idea here, uh, th this is an unstable situation. We cannot stay there. But this is perhaps where some of these societies are caught. So in the middle of the gender revolution, <coughs> not enough gender equity, not enough policies uh, that allow uh, gender equity, fertility is low. At the end, the end point, where is the new fertility regime? The end point potentially is when women revolution is mature societies have policies to allow for the combination of female labor force participation and family life. Men are participating into household labor, so it's sort of dream, usually called Sweden, but that's, uh, for, but it's not necessarily only Sweden. Fertility is up. Uh, we can go very quickly from A to C. There can be a quick uh, implementation of this passage. We can go very slowly. We can stay a long time here. This has implication. But both in, in this situation, you could see both are potential equilibrium. So the traditional <coughs> Becker-Parsons division of flavor, perfect specialization, and an equal uh, participation equilibrium, both let's say with an average of two kids, so maybe with a situation it was higher fertility. <coughs> so in the new regime, sustainable fertility and family outcomes, i.e. not too far from two, are no longer against general well-being and gender equity. And there's a positive relationship. Policy developments then has to have to be seen as endogenous to this, to this shift. They're accompanying, they're pushed by this general shift. Japan is, is an outlier. Maybe we can, we can explain why it is an outlier, at least with simple macroanalysis, so it's not very profound theory or profound <coughs> econometrics, so let's say just a guess. Just putting gender equity is enough to, <coughs> to explain why Japan and other countries are, not, are outliers in this uh, relationship. Why they get stuck at B. Okay. Of course, one should always uh, 
try to avoid uh, monocausal explanations, but this is one situation where empirically we get decently uh, good explanation by looking at that approach. So this is the new fertility regime. Is it enough? Can we stop here if we want to study population reproduction? Uh, if the population is closed, yes. Again, the only population that is really close to migratory movements is the world population. There are some populations that are empirically closed to uh, migratory movements, and maybe we are there. But it's important to look at migration. Uh, are there questions? Because now I, I say, OK, we have this fertility regime. We identify one of the challenges in population reproduction. Now I pass to the second part the second part of the equation. Any questions on clarification? Well, of course, there will be discussion. Thank you, Chris. Well, I wonder, you, you made a point to talk about policies changing. Isn't it also practices changing? How, how responsive a society is to an introduction of certain policy? The government might want to say, oh, you should have very gender equal relations, and that might but there might be social resistance to that. So it's okay, uh, thank you. That, that's, that, that's a great. So uh, I, I, I don't have data to substantiate this idea, but there are two points that, first of all, your, your question triggers me, triggers an, another reflection. First of all, some policies try to go back to the old equilibrium, i.e., women back at home, more unequal gender relationship, having kids earlier. We haven't seen any society towards that direction. And where societies have tried that, it seems it doesn't work. I think Singapore may be the closest example to that idea. So policies have to be received. So here, the idea is more that policies are, if you think there is a democratic choice, you could see this as a women's labor force participation. This is 0%, which is never there. And this is 100%, which is never there. If you think of a voting model in a society in which the majority of women is on the labor market, there is a big interest to vote for policies that are allowing for the combination of work and family. And also their husbands may vote for that. In a society where only a minority of women is in the labor market, basically it's, it's hard to pass uh, legislation unless Europe or the UN or someone else is imposing that on us, which happened in the fertility change in the past. In a society where women are working for the majority <coughs> of cases, it's much easier to implement that. So I'm thinking more of a democratic process that is pushed from the bottom up, but maybe a democratic dream. I, I have a question about policy. Like, you had this example of the US, which has this magic, is above two fertility, the total fertility rate, but they're not very good uh, with maternity leave and things like that. So, okay. why are they so good with fertility? So, maybe I got stuck in the policy, but you could read market and policy. So, when my point is that there has to be some services, service provision. Uh, in the US, what works well is uh, somehow uh, access to market provision, provision for the combination of uh, 
work and family. The US is also a very divided society, so I, I wouldn't like to go in discussing that, but I, I, I could say this does, doesn't have to be a socialist uh, central provision of, uh, of services. The point is that the general change is calling for uh, having uh, the possibility to combine work and family. And in some cases, it will be democratic process, electoral voting. In other cases, democratic process of saying low taxes, we can afford to pay our services. <coughs> okay, let me go to migration because, again, population reproduction is two parts. Uh, okay, fertility was going down, life expectancy was going up, but especially rapid fall in fertility brought about the problem of quick population aging. That's why uh, many people study the demography of Japan, Italy, or Germany. Uh, the UN in, I think, 15 years ago, the UN came with a, a report on, oh, can, can we use migration to replace missing birds? So my simple answer is technically from what we saw at the very beginning, in the simple equation, one birth equals one migrant. Technically, I'll, from the arithmetic perspective, that's true. So technically, you can always re have one birth less and one migrant more in terms of population reproduction. They may be of different ages, so that's, that will make things a bit more complicated, but that's possible. Uh, so the definition of the replacement migration, uh, the UN said, OK, this is the international migration. So it was explicitly posed at the international migration level that will be needed to offset declines in three things. Uh, the size of population, the global population size, the population of working age, and for simplicity you could say this is corresponding to the reproduction of cohorts. So if more or less you can keep people at age 30 constant, it will mean that the working age population will be constant. Or the overall aging of the population, which is the mighty ratio between people in working age and retired people, or vice versa, depending on how. Uh, the last one is the tricky one. And uh, there is a, I, I didn't know you were coming, David, but uh, <laughs> replacement migration according to Coleman. Replacement rate migration, or why everyone is going to have to live in Korea, a favor for our times from the United Nations. So basically, if we take this kind of ratios, support ratio or dependency ratio, uh, and I could add, because of rapid population decline, so the simple ratio between different courts, it's technically almost impossible to keep uh, support ratio, dependency ratio constants. Uh, I think in one of the simulations, to keep the, the ratio constant to Korea, the number of migrants was almost equal to the whole world. <laughs> this is another scenario which I will focus on. It's more connected to cohort reproduction, keeping the working age population constant. Uh, these are migrants per million, so like this is six per thousand. 
So this, from, this is from the UN. I will show you other data later. So how many net migrants we need to maintain the working age population stable? And you can see the countries that have the highest need. This is low fertility countries. Italy, Germany, Japan here, Russia. You cannot see it probably because it's very small and down there. But in, let's say, in the replacement migration UN idea, you could keep uh, working age population size <coughs> constant between 2000, 2050, so a long period, by having each year about six migrants per thousand in Japan, it was uh, five net migrants per thousand. And you remember the data were there, Japan is around <coughs> one or so. Is this realistic? Or maybe yes. Uh, cohort reproduction, another way to see it. This is work I've been doing with Giancarlo Dallazuana. So mothers can reproduce them through having children and let them survive until becoming mothers. Or ideally, you, you could say, we, we count the people who are born in a given year and who are resident in a country. So who's born in 1970? So it's me. I'm here. I, belong to the court of residence in the UK in 1970. I'm not born in the UK. Can you count me in in population reproduction? Oh, depends on your definition. For instance, if you want to count people who are 40-something in the UK, I count in the census. I may count if you want to compare me with people who, are, who were there 40 years ago. So what we do here is we look at the the co this is the cohort born around 50, 54, the size of the cohort in thousands in different countries. And again, this includes Japan. And you can compare. So this is age 30, let's say prime working age or prime childbearing age, which is the same. And not by chance. This is a, a challenge. And so if you look at Italy here, this was the size of the court of mothers. This is the size of the court of <coughs> daughters, 3 million. This was 3.7, 3.8 million. Because of low fertility, they couldn't reproduce them at birth. And if, it was, if only mortality was operating, the numbers would go down. But there is migration. Migration is going on. Italy suddenly becomes a, a net immigration country. Magically, this is 30, 34. Uh, these were still uh, forecast. Basically, the cohort is reproduced. 3,000, 3 million and a half. It's almost the same number as here, starting from 3 million. What happened in the meanwhile, in terms of net entry, 600,000 enter and basically replaced, if we take that definition, uh, the births that were not there. OK, this is Italy, big migration country. Spain, <coughs> even bigger in the, in the last years. Things have changed, and I'm not prepared to discuss what happened after the crisis. Everyone is coming here, so. but 
in a country where net migration is taken as seriously as to be put as a policy target. So Spain, 2.5 million, 2.5 million there. So this is not only fertility, it depends also on the, on the number of people who are there. But look at how, what's the growth of this number. We get to three point, we, basically Spanish people in this court are almost the same as Italians. And these are countries of different size. Okay, Japan. Let me focus on Japan. No surprise, Korea, Estonia. Nine million seven point four. We get to seven point five. So this is a situation that you can see in a country without the effect of replacement migration. A country where basically reproduction is dominated by what happens in terms of births. Uh, okay, UK is not as fast as Italy, but similar there. So uh, another, uh, another definition of reproduction that includes migration is showing that even with low fertility, and again, Italy and Spain, lower for even lower fertility than Japan, not now, but at least during this period, Migrants may be enough to replace uh, the courts and go back and keep working age population. Uh, okay, I don't want to show you too many numbers. So what happened there, and these are forecasts, this is the old age dependency ratio, the famous uh, measure that it's impossible to keep constant, and by definition you cannot keep it constant. It will go up. Old age dependency ratio will go up. Japan is high there and it stays there. Italy is there. Spain is there. For some reason, South Korea, who was there, is rich in Spain with similar levels of fertility, but very different levels of migration. So Actually, migration matters also for this indicator. It's true that it cannot solve the problem because the whole world will move to South Korea, but if you had the same uh, level of migration, still the growth of the old age dependency ratio would be slower. Uh, and here we had some simulation to show that it was, let's say, let me just <coughs> mention that it is realistic to have some net migration rates that maintain working age population constant. I'm happy to go back to the technical part, but I don't want to get stuck into these figures also because it's more. Is, is the message fine? So basically, reproduction happens through migration as well, where you have migration. If there is no migration, reproduction happens to fertility. It's not technically true that uh, migration doesn't do anything in terms of aging, because it may slow the pace of population aging. It doesn't solve the growth of the uh, dependency ratio, but it, but it may slow that. Uh, <coughs> We can observe that at the court level, but let, I, I, I would like to skip that. Sorry. I'd like to go back to Italy, if you allow me. 
So this is Italy, sorry to be a bit romantic. Uh, Milan, Turin, Genoa, it's called the Industrial Triangle. Uh, so basically everything that is production related, so Fiat is here, Ferrari around there. Uh, here you have uh, finance and fashion, and in Genoa you have the ships to, to send it all over the place or, or bring the energy. Uh, so, fertility in this area was under replacement very long time ago. 1920 is the court, the first court where you observe fertility under replacement. So, we'll, we'll, how could they get all the? How how could they get the post-war boom in this area? Simple answer: migration, high immigration rate, and this is the again the highest per capita income area forever. This is cohort fertility rate. Italy, here, France. Southern Italy, Northwestern Italy. So this is showing, this is cohort fertility rate, meaning the average number of uh, children for a woman born in a given year. So you can see that Northwestern regions in Italy haven't been able to reach replacement levels since the whole uh, 20th century, basically. So even France had higher fertility than that. Okay, France now is a champion. And you see France is also like the US, a bit this magical <coughs> trick where they manage to get exactly uh, reproduction. And then when they go to 198, they start worrying that fertility is too low. <laughs> okay, this is what happened. Why is it interesting? Because there are no borders. Okay, there are cultural borders. All. Uh, so let, let me declare my conflict of interest. I'm born because of migration from southern to northern Italy. So my parents were born in the south. They went to the north. They met each other there. And so there's a conflict of interest. My own existence is tied to the process I'm describing. Uh, but borders were open cultural borders were there. There were also signs, we don't rent to southerners. We don't want you to go away. But there was no formal uh, barrier. What happened? Uh, let me skip the second demographic transition. Basically, this is the population of northwestern Italy in 1951. And you see, it's, it's interesting. We can project that to 2001 in two ways. We can keep uh, migration as it, so as it happened, reality. Or we can forecast what will happen in terms uh, if there was no migration. I hope you can see something, but otherwise I will describe that. So these dark lines are the, are the hypothetical uh, size of population groups where there no migration to northwestern Italy. And you see a 
relatively old composition. So look at the dark side for the moment. This is 2001. It, it hasn't happened. It's just a counterfactual exercise. What has happened is this one, lots of workers around here. These are the kids, these are the migrants themselves or the kids of migrants like I was when I was there in 2001. Uh, without, so the number of 65 plus with migration in 2001 was 19%, without migration would have been 25%. The total population was much bigger. So one of the consequences of this uh, idea that migration is replacing birth is of course this may have a consequence uh, in terms of uh, population size. Uh, it is interesting to compare two regions using the measure I discussed earlier. So, are mothers replacing, sorry, are daughters replacing their mothers? Uh, in the way we discuss now, the question is relevant when you add migration and you say, is the court of mothers replacing, replaced by the court of daughters? These are two Italian regions, Sicily and Piedmont. And basically, we look at a cohort born around the late 50s. Uh, here, you don't see it's 100. So 100 means, if you are 100 at age 0, means that Basically, mothers had exactly enough kids to replace themselves. If it's above 100, and this is Sicily, under 40, it means that mothers had more kids to replace themselves. If it's lower, Piedmont, northwestern Italy, but you know that in Piedmont, fertility was below replacement in northwestern Italy since the beginning of almost the beginning of the 20th century. This is 100. So then we look at the same court over time. This is when they are five to nine, five years later. They've changed because people have moved. It's not that all people from Sicily have moved to Piedmont and all, all arrivals to Piedmont are the same. But the nice thing why we chose selectively this graph with Jean Piero, the nice thing is that there is this magic convergence to close to 100. So no borders. What, what you could see if you, if you were a bit seen population as a system, a homeostatic change where the high fertility region, poor region, the low fertility rich and industrial region, converge with population reproduction being close to unity. So basically, people aged 30, 34, in 91 are the same number as people aged 30, 34, 30 years before. But this didn't happen only through fertility, but it happened through the combination of fertility and migration without borders, convergence. Uh, there is some evidence, I skipped the slides, uh, but I, I will have the reference in the, uh, in the paper. There is some evidence that a little bit of this homeostatic relationship is also 
uh, happening at the global level in international migration. But of course, their borders count. And so the issue is whether, thank you, whether policies will become endogenous also in this other part of population reproduction. So in, on the role of migration, second half, in low fertility countries, migration has significantly contributed to the replacement of core. Aging has accelerated faster where migration was low or virtually absent, for instance, Japan. When we look at an experiment without borders, within Italy, there seems to be a homeostatic move and in, in areas of high fertility, there was out-migration. In areas of low fertility, there was immigration. And of course, I'm showing you a very selective, but illustrative case of a homeostatic move towards replacement at the cohort level. And you know that I have two definitions of population reproduction. One is general population reproduction, and the other one is cohort reproduction. That's where we start. Let me conclude here, because I think it's time to conclude. So when mortality is low, we are starting from that. Population reproduction is driven by fertility and migration. There is a temporary role for current age structure. I haven't gone into that, but there is, a, there is an effect. Fertility recap is becoming more linked to general well-being and gender equity. And the new fertility regime, from what I argue, is irreversible. There is no way back. Women are not going back home and not having kids earlier. The role of migration becomes more important when fertility is low. And that's probably something that uh, when governments discuss migration policies, uh, there doesn't seem to be a big awareness of that, because uh, thinking that one can have uh, low fertility and still keep uh, same migration policies uh, if you care about population aging is a bit uh, inconsistent. So the role of migration is important in the short term, and this is because one could maintain the size of labor force if migration is possible. I'm not discussing China because you could challenge me and say, OK, how can you have replacement migration in China? There may be other big, uh, uh, for, for the moment, other countries providing that. But that's, that's a bit more challenging. But also, in the, in the long term, because simply one birth equals one migrant in, in the simple equation. And it's useful. Uh, it's, it can be shown to to slow the aging process. Peculiarities of Japan share perhaps in the region, again from a non-expert. Low on gender equity, so mean it's lagging behind in the new fertility regime. Low on migration, the effect of low fertility is then magnified. And, but here I have experts, so I'll, maybe the policies are not oriented towards making, towards these shifts but they are oriented towards a more traditional view of the society. But I'm not aware of all the, all the recent policy debates. Uh, 
I'd like to acknowledge my co-authors, Gian Piero Dallazuana, who's now sitting in the Italian Senate, Josta uh, Espin Anderson, Hans-Peter Kohler, and Mikko Merskela. Uh, otherwise, I won't have all this stuff. And here are some references, and Katia has uh, the presentation, should you need that. So, I'm just proud of my first references on the Japanese Journal of the Population. <laughs> Thank you.